been four weeks that we've been going through the core values that we've proposed for our church to consider tonight in our business meeting. We were supposed to consider them last month, but the weather prevented us from doing that. So we started a sermon series to walk through the six core values that we identified as a church. Prayer, community, unity, the Bible, evangelism, evangelism, and discipleship. As I was preparing this week, I got to wondering, have I talked about core values too much? Are we sick of it yet? Are we tired of hearing about core values? Just wonder, are we tired of wondering or talking about core values? As I thought about that question, what occurred to me was the reason why they're important in the first place. Why it's important that we identify core values, why it's important that we talk about them, why we not grow weary in understanding them. The main reason, of course, is because they provide for us some sort of way to refocus ourselves and to root ourselves and to ground ourselves in the work that we're doing together. As individuals, working together as the body of Christ in a single church, we have to be united in the work that we're doing. We all have to be on board in the work that we're doing. And it's important that we identify these things. But also, I would add it that it's important that we have something to ground ourselves in as we work together. We've been going through the church, uh, the book of Colossians, where Paul is writing to the church in Colossae. And one of the things that we've identified is that this somewhat newly formed church has struggled to be grounded in what they are dealing with. I spent quite a bit of time the last two weeks talking about the context, and so I won't be doing that today. But what we learned is that this church in Colossae is up against some major false teachers who have infiltrated the church and started to win these new believers over to ways of Gnosticism and even mysticism. That is... um, a false belief that we have some special understanding or special knowledge that allows us to draw closer to God. And the second one, mysticism, this false belief that we can elevate ourselves and become closer to God in that way. They're they're very related in the way that I'm talking about them in Colossians. Paul's writing to the church to give them clarity, to give them um, to, to help them pull themselves back out of these false teachings they've fallen victim of buying into. There's a problem with being a Christian. In the moment of conversion, we aren't somehow specially or uh, all of a sudden have all of the spiritual knowledge that we will ever need to be successful to run the race of a Christian. At the moment of conversion, when somebody saved for the first time, they did not gain any special knowledge. They didn't gain any special knowledge that allows them to understand the mysteries of the Bible that Paul writes about, that Jesus talks about. No special knowledge that's born into us in that moment. Now, the Holy Spirit comes and, and definitely does give us some special insight and wisdom through the ministry of the Holy Spirit, but we're still missing the knowledge that we need. Growing in the Christian faith and maturing in the Christian faith requires us to wrestle 
with these mysteries, to, to wrestle with our understanding of metaphysical things, even grow in our understanding of theological things, abstract ideas that don't really matter if we understand them if we are failing in applying them to real life. Just because we understand abstract concepts isn't good enough. We have to be able to apply them to real life. When we become a Christian, we don't automatically have this understanding. And there's a reason why I use the words wrestling to describe what it's like to grow in this knowledge. Life's messy. The reality is life is messy. I love to plan things. I love to plan things. I like making big plans, multi-stage plans, phased plans. I like to know what's going to happen next and to have some sort of sense that I'm in control of the future, even though that's not true. And the reality is it doesn't matter how well I've planned things, life always throws its obstacles Nothing ever goes according to plan. In fact, a perfect plan leaves plenty of room for real life to make adjustments. In our spiritual maturing, as we grow more spiritually mature, as we grow in understanding of abstract concepts, and we start to apply those to a messy life. The reason it's so complicated is because we have to keep making references. Our core values as a church help us stay grounded. But ultimately, I want to talk today about the core value that we have in the Bible. Our reference point for guiding us in navigating the messiness of ministry. Today we'll be picking up in the book of Colossians at the end of chapter 2 to read about the ways that the Christians in Colossae are warned by Paul. What we've looked at previously, Paul has given us his purpose in writing. He's introduced himself. He's drawn attention to the authority that he has as somebody ministering on the behalf of the Gentiles. Finally, Paul starts to get a little bit applicable in where we're picking up today. He's giving the Christians in Colossae direct warnings that are relevant for us today. So we'll be picking up in Colossians chapter 2. I'll be reading from verses 16 through 23, and I'll invite you to be reading along with me as we look at the three warnings that Paul provides. The Bible says, Therefore, let no one pass judgment on you in question of food and drink or with regards to a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath. These are a shadow of the things to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. Let no one disqualify you, insisting on asceticism and the worship of angels going on in detail about visions, puffed up without reason by his sensuous mind and not holding fast to the head from whom the whole body, nourished and knit together through its joints and ligaments, grows with a growth that is from God. If with Christ you died to the elemental spirits of the world, why, as if you were still alive in the world, do you submit to regulations? 
do not handle, do not taste, do not touch, referring to things that all perish as they are used, according to human precepts and teachings, they have indeed an appearance of wisdom in promoting self-made religion and asceticism and severity to the body, but they are of no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. So there's three warnings that we can pick up from in this text. The first one that Paul gives us is let no one judge you. Instead, refer to back to the Bible. The first warning is found at the beginning. It says, therefore, let no one pass judgment on you in question of food and of drink. There's two specific warnings. Let no one judge you about what your dietary regimens look like. And let no one judge you in regards to the calendars that you keep. The main issue being presented here, and it's actually kind of funny if you think about it, because the church in Colossae, they were never Jewish. They were Gentile converts that formed this church in Colossae. And when I think about legalism and how it infiltrated the early church, I think about the um, Jerusalem conference in Acts, where there was this debate between Jewish converts about what regulations they needed to keep from the law. The Gentile converts didn't have any of that history or background. But these Gnostics, these false teachers that had infiltrated the church, told them that in some way, if they maintain severe discipline over their body by controlling what they consume, controlling the festivals and holidays that they keep, that they would be able to gain a spiritual closeness with God. And the people had bought into this. They had bought into this, this false truth, this untruth. It's funny to me to think that the church in Colossae, a church that had no legalist background, that had no, no, no law to refer back to, found themselves drawing closer to legalism, what we would call legal or dogmatism. Why? I'm, I'm puzzled as I, as I read this letter from Paul and Timothy and I think about what the church was going through. Why did they allow themselves to be put in this position that they were allowing others to judge them about silly things like diets and calendars? The same problem or the same human condition or fallen condition that exists in the church in Colossae exists for Christians today. It's this. When we understand grace, when we really understand grace, we immediately start to explain it. We try to make sense of it. And we say that there's something that we need to do to be deserving of grace, which is in fact the opposite of what grace is. My dad told me growing up every single day, he said, don't forget nothing in life is free. There's a new stimulus check that's coming out. That's my tax dollars. It wasn't free. Nothing in life is free. My dad would always remind me there is nothing in life that is free. And then we get to talk about grace, God's free, undeserving love. 
and it is seriously, genuinely free. There's nothing in life that can compare to it. And so we try to explain it away. What are my tax dollars that contribute to this grace that I don't deserve? Grace is bigger than anything in this life. The same human fallen condition that the saints in Colossae were struggling with and allowing themselves to adopt legalism, even though they had no history or background in this, is the same fallen condition that we have as saints today that can cause us to be legalistic as Christians. Paul specifically refers to diets. In the Old Testament, there were several foods that Jews were supposed to abstain from eating. He talks about calendars because there were festivals and and feasts that were prescribed that went along with the months. In fact, as we mentioned today, we're leading up into Easter. There's a festival called Lent that a lot of Christians are observing. The reality of it is Christians are not bound to a calendar We are not bound to a a dietary restriction that allows us to worship. Paul describes these things as shadows. They had their place for the nation of Israel. They were a shadow of what was to come. They were like training wheels to help the nation of Israel prepare themselves to be a people ready for the Messiah to come into the world. They were like training wheels but they aren't all necessary now. In fact, many of these things we've been set free from. We're no longer under the law, but we are under grace. And I want to clarify something here because I'm, I'm not saying that the Old Testament doesn't matter, and I'm not saying that some of the uh, requirements in the law matter. What I'm saying is we have to be careful as Christians not to add to the law what does not exist to add regulations and restrictions that are not found in the Bible. Paul's warning to Christians is, don't let others judge you. Let no one judge you. Refer back to the Bible. There's a difference between being judged and being rebuked. And if it's coming from here, that's a rebuke. Unnecessary judgments have no place in the church because ultimately they can do more damage than good. And that isn't to say that for some people those restrictions might be different as our conscious. God might uh, convict us differently, but we need to be careful about how we present those to others and operate as a church. Paul, when writing to Timothy, his co-author of Colossians here in 1 Timothy 1.8, he said that even the law has its place when it's used correctly or it's used well. But again... It is a warning for Christians to be careful how we use the law. Do we allow it to become some sort of constraint that we hold ourselves to, to to make our worship more genuine when in fact it draws us away from God because it teaches us some sort of self-reliance? Let's look at the second warning. God says, let no one disqualify you, instead refer to the Bible. So far, two warnings. Let no one judge you. Instead, refer to the Bible. The second one, let no one disqualify you. Instead, refer to the Bible. Now, this one stumped me as I studied it. 
Let's read it uh, from verse 18. Let no one disqualify you, insisting on asceticism and the worship of angels, going on in detail about visions, puffed up without a reason by his sensuous mind, and not holding fast to the head. That word translated in, in my translation of the Bible, I'm reading from the ESV, let no one disqualify you, is translated quite differently in the King James Version of the Bible. If you have the King James Version, it reads, let no man beguile you of your reward. It's a pretty significant tra- translative difference between these two. And so I had to dig a little bit deeper to try and figure out what the Bible is saying here. After all, the Bible can't mean what it never meant, so I need to try and understand what this meant originally. Both of those phrases, that word disqualify or beguile, comes from the Greek word katarab, uh, sorry, katarab, ooh, yo, I said it a thousand times this morning to get ready for this. Katabrabua, katabrabua. And I thought referring to other places in the Bible might help me understand what this meant. And I found out this is the only place in the Bible that this word is used. So I did more digging. And here's what I found out. This word is an athletic term. This is a term to describe what an umpire would do at a baseball game when he disqualifies somebody and he says, you're out. It's an athletic term to describe that type of an action. Kata rab uo. To describe that kind of an action. And the translators between the ESV, I think they were both in the same page. One says to disqualify you. That would be the ESV. Because what we're saying here is that that person is disqualified. They're no longer eligible to win. But the ESV picks up on a second piece of that translation, which I think is, and I'm sorry, the King James Version picks up on a second piece of that translation, which I think is significantly important for us to understand what Paul's warning us against when he says, let no one disqualify you. This word to beguile means to charm or to enchant someone, but it carries with it this sense of fraud, a sense of deception. Let no one deceive you that you might not receive your reward. That's where they're getting the second piece of that phrase. This is what's significant. For us to understand what Paul is warning the Christians in Colossae against, we have to understand he is saying, let no one deceive you that you might not be able to experience the reward of genuine worship with God that you might not be able to experience the reward of having a personal relationship with God. Because here's what's happening. Paul knows that all of these things that these legalists are um, ultimately telling them to avoid, 
They're saying avoid this and avoid that, things that our flesh naturally wants and, and, and desires. Avoid all of these things. Be in control because that will somehow fulfill you spiritually that you might be able to be closer to God. And it's not actually going to work that way because the only thing that will ever satisfy your need for a relationship with God is actually God. God's presence, his, his actual relationship with you. And the only way that you get there is by surrendering to grace as it is. Not by adding to it, making it more complicated than it needs to be. Instead, don't let somebody rip you off. The genuine relationship that you can have with God, instead, refer yourself to the Bible and see the clear path for a relationship with Him that He has for you. Paul mentions that these people are worshiping angels. This is silly. Oh, this is so silly. And I imagine the way that this presents itself, that people, again, the same issue, that we're confronted with the grace that God has for us and and just how miraculous it is. And we try to explain it with rules and everything else. How do people get to a place where they're worshiping angels? A part of creation that is below us. Angels were not created in God's image. Man and woman were created in God's image. And, and these people, they, they disqualify the believers by teaching them to worship angels. I believe a part of the deceit was in thinking that this was done as a humble act of worship. I wonder if it went something like this. Maybe they acknowledged, I myself am not worthy to worship God, the creator of everything and his majesty. It would be better for me to go through something lower than God, something, someone, so that that way I can get to God. There's not a direct path. Some twisted sort of humility. And really, it's not humble at all. Because what they're really saying is what the Bible says isn't good enough. What they're really saying is maybe if they go through the right path, their reliance is on themselves, and maybe that's how they'll have a relationship with God. It presents itself at first glance as humility, but in fact, it's arrogance. It is a self-type of worship. Maybe instead, we could rely solely on what God has given us and described as completely sufficient for all things pertaining to faith and life, and that is God's revealed word. Maybe we could rely directly on what he's instructed us to do, which is despite our unworthiness, go to him directly. I want to look at this last piece of this phrase. Verse 19 describes these people as not holding fast to the head. These people who would deceive, these people who would disqualify, not holding fast to the head, and it describes the head like this, from whom the whole body is nourished and knit together through its joints and ligaments, growing with a growth that comes from God. The reality is that genuine heart 
worship, genuine spirit worship, always goes back to the head of the body. The sufficiency of Jesus to make it possible for us to go to God directly. True worship does, in fact, always humble a person, not in the false way that we talked about these Gnostic heretics um, presenting in the church in Colossae, but true worship always humbles a person. Our mind is awed by the greatness of God. Our heart is filled with the love of God. And our will is submitted to God's purpose. We have the same fallen condition that the church in Colossae had that made them susceptible to this sort of false teaching picking up root in their church. We can heed the same warnings that Paul is giving to the church here, but also we can take the same advice that he's giving to them on this warning. Instead of allowing ourselves to be deceived, we can... Go to the nourishment that comes from the head. This is one place in the Bible of many where the church is described as the body of Christ. As a singular body, an an organism that is united together. Even though we're individual believers, we are a singular organism. Not an organization, but an organism brought together to fulfill a purpose, to fulfill a role, to minister to one another, to, to do work ultimately under the leadership of the head. By the way, I do not like the articles that I put in the church bulletins every week, but this week's is a good one. So if you haven't had a chance to read it, I would encourage you to do that because it's about who the boss is of the body. And here's the answer. It is the head. Churches sometimes find themselves in the position of trying to find nourishment in revamping ministries revamping programs or designing things that look attractive from the outside to bring people in. And it's really foolishness because the only nourishment from the body, as the Bible says, is the head. The only nourishment for the church is the head who provides this nourishment. When we are deceived into believing anything else, even into believing or following ourselves, that deception cuts us off from that nourishment. It puts us in a position where we can become spiritually starved because we are no longer connected to the head. It's one of the many reasons why the church is as important as it is. Instead of following <coughs> deception, We should be committed to grounding ourselves in God's word that we are able to find nourishment. Coming to the end, I've gone through two warnings so far that Paul presents. The first one, let no one judge you. Instead, refer to the Bible. Let no one disqualify you. Instead, refer to the Bible. This third one, let no one subjugate you. Instead, refer to the Bible. To the Bible. If you would read with me from verse 20, where Paul and Timothy write, If with Christ you died to the elemental spirits of the world, why, as if you were still alive in the world, do you submit to regulations? Do not handle, do not taste, do not touch, 
referring to things of this world that all perish as they are used, according to human precepts and teachings. These have indeed an appearance of wisdom in promoting self-made religion and asceticism and severity to the body, but they are of no value in stopping the indulgences of the flesh or the indulgence of the flesh. This is where Paul really hits home. He talks about all of the the legalistic mandates that have been put on the people within the church, all of the things that have, the pressures, the things that have, I think in modern times we can say have hurt many people who have left the church. All of these things, Paul says, why do you allow yourself to be put under its control? Why do you allow yourself to be subjugated by it? Why would you do this to yourself? The whole good news of the gospel is that you're set free. For the Jews, it was that they were set free from legalistic traditions. For everyone, it is that we have been set free from the bondage and the slavery and the captivity of sin in our lives. The argument being made here, if you pay attention to what's said in the last phrase... All of these things that you allow yourself to submit to have no value in actually stopping the indulgence of the flesh. Having discipline isn't a problem. We should be disciplined. But having discipline doesn't do anything to stop cravings. I brought donuts in this morning. And I didn't put this in my notes as an illustration. It's not why I brought them in. But I brought donuts in this morning And there were at least two people that I can think of that said, no, I've made good decisions this morning. I'm not interested. Or I am interested, but I'm disciplined enough to say no. And there's times when we need to do that. But their discipline didn't do anything to change the fact that sugary fried bread is delicious, and they knew it. Discipline doesn't do anything to do away with the indulgence of the flesh. When it comes to the things that keep us distanced from God, that put a wedge in our relationship with our Savior, being disciplined isn't going to take those things away. But the reality is, the alternative, the sweetness of the gospel, as simple as it is, the sufficiency of Christ the reality is that that provides a way for us to not have those impulses anymore, to actually have victory over sin. As we surrender to the grace of God, which makes that possible, these false ideas, legalism, mysticism, Gnosticism, however we want to describe them, They seem like they're wise because they present themselves as a path to spiritual heightening. We'll be able to understand things more because we've connected in a more spiritual way. This is silliness, guys. This is so silly. I can't emphasize enough how silly this is. You don't need anything other than Jesus And his word to provide instruction to have a spiritual connection. You want to go deeper, go deeper. But don't fall victim 
to the false teachers that still exist in our world today. That provide garbage. Don't hurt others by projecting projecting the requirements that you have for yourself on them. Instead, commit wholeheartedly to drawing from the nourishment that we have in the head. We're going to have a song of invitation this morning, and um, I'll invite you to stand with us as we sing it. But the invitation's simple this morning. The invitation is so simple. Would you set aside the things that don't need to be there? The distractions that keep us from having a genuine relationship with God. It is not a bad thing to want to have a spiritually heightened moment in connection with God. But we have to be grounded in His Word if we're to do that successfully. And as we sing that song, I will invite you to not only set that aside, but to come to God with a heart that's ready to receive Him. Number 300. Thank you.